and welcome to Military Reunion Network Radio. I'm Sharon Danachek, your host. If you have seen the miniseries, The Long Road Home, or read the book, you will greatly appreciate uh, the conversation today. We are joined by uh, retired Lieutenant General Gary Valeski. Uh, he is a three-star general and was in Sauter City in 2004 when everything went down. And uh, boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. So uh, welcome. Uh, Gary, we thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Sharon, for giving me the opportunity to meet with you today and, and have a great conversation this morning. Yeah, you and I met uh, in January when you came to speak um, at my church, and it was a Veterans Appreciation Dinner, and I was uh, so blown away by um, your conversation uh, and your points um, and talking about your history and service that it was it was um it was just like i you know we needed to have a longer conversation and so this is this is one of many uh, to come um for those of you uh for for those of our listeners i guess that are um not familiar um with the long road home why don't we start with your military service and specifically Sutter city okay uh, but to to talk about Sutter city i think we need to set some conditions of what influenced the operations when we finally got there. Um, as you know, the the, the um, invasion of uh, Iraq had had been done. Saddam Hussein was out of power. We were trying to stand up this this other government, and the the violence in the cities and in all of Iraq had really subsided pretty much significantly. And so, you know that we were replacing basically told us it was more of a peacekeeping humanitarian assistance role than combat operations. And so that's what we've been told since we found out we were gonna to go to Sauter City. So the decisions that were made before we went there was, because it was more of a peacekeeping humanitarian assistance perspective on the mission, we weren't gonna take all our combat vehicles and prescribe the number we could take. We're gonna move out of the cities because the, again, the US forces were trying to transition to Iraqi security. So move out of the cities, which meant the base of the unit that had occupied before us in the city, we were not going to be allowed to take over. And so they moved us about a kilometer outside the city. And the, the unit that was we were going to replace was going to leave two weeks earlier than my unit, my unit replaced them would get to Iraq. So to offset that, I brought 30 of my leaders and we deployed about a month early to, to sit down with that unit for two weeks and, and learn what they had learned for their year deployment in, in Sauter City, meet the key people, really get a feel for what this city looked like. A city of 2 million people, 26 square kilometers, you know, predominantly Shia, very majority of Shia people that had, had not had any, any um, benefit from the, the Saddam Hussein government at all. In fact, they just terrorized the people of Sauter City and they were petrified of Saddam Hussein. And so, because there was not any governmental assistance for that, there was sewage in the streets, there was no sewage system, that the garbage collection was when they threw it out and let their goats eat it. I mean, uh, water, not uh, a lot of potable water. So we went in thinking we do a sewage, water, electricity, and trash would be our focus, to try to help improve the quality of life of the people. Yeah. So my unit, uh, had to drive from Kuwait to get to Iraq because we didn't have a place to fly airplanes or move equipment. So we brought all our equipment from Kuwait and they got there about the first. Well, the unit that we had replaced had left two weeks earlier. And so the only 
consistent U.S. presence with me and my 30 folks in the in the city trying to figure it all out. So they got there the first. Um, spent about a day and a half doing maintenance, and so the majority of the unit got into the city the first time on the 3rd of April. And so you're looking at leaders that have never seen the place before, 2 million people in a span of 26 square kilometers. Uh, the living condition is not very, uh, very good. Trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? Meet the people that we were trying to introduce them to. So the next day, the fourth, one of the platoons was escorting sewage trucks in one part of the city. And you know, over the last previous few weeks, we've been getting some indications that things were not as peaceful as we had been originally told. Uh, there was a huge Mahdi Army uh, march in Sadr City uh, a few days prior that pulled military-age males. We saw a lot more military-age males coming into the city. Yeah. And this Mahdi Army was what Vakhtar Sadr would use to create this insurgency throughout Iraq over that period of time. So the, uh, the unit was escorting these trucks. Uh, they saw as they were providing the security for those trucks and people come up to those sewage, uh, people collect the sewage and threaten them. And so the guys got in their truck and drove off and then my unit started to get shot at. Uh, the, the fortunate thing was that that night I was home, at that time I was having a meeting with all my company commanders in our headquarters outside the city. And so when the report came in that they were under fire, well, the fortunate thing is all my leaders were together, they didn't have to go find anybody. So we went over the map, got the initial report that was very sketchy because the unit didn't know where they were yeah. exactly. We had one radio that was working, that was our length of them. And the units, is that unit that had, the, all the units that, were, that we were replacing were leaving. So there was no one to call to say, hey, I need help. Right. So we made a plan, but the Southern City is pretty much square um, in, in shape. So we we're going to enter the northern part of the city, run the eastern boundary, and then a lot of time we could turn west and do a penetration attack into rescue Rescue.com. Well, the other dynamic of Southern City that we hadn't realized was the size of the markets in the middle of the, the cities. And these were all markets that sold. They're like your Walmart in in your in your town. You know, they sold everything: furniture, appliances, had concrete barricades to help direct people where they were going to go in those markets. And then what they basically did is just threw all these things in the middle of the street to create obstacles, and they they reinforced them with some improvised explosive devices that the boys had to breach as they were trying to get through this piece while taking fire. So yeah. as we entered the city down the eastern side of the the city, the, the plan, the movement went according to plan. But as we turned to the right, to the west to make that attack, we started receiving fire from every alleyway, every rooftop, uh, from every direction with our RPGs, uh, automatic weapon and small arms fire. Uh, so the unit that I went with the lead company going in to, to do this extraction of our platoon, and they hit the Meridi market and couldn't go any farther. So instead of trying to plow through it under fire, we took a right and tried to go up north and then come back left. Well, they hit the next market and got stopped and started taking casualties. So at that point, we decided to and occupy a place that was out of contact. And I met the company commander on the ground who was wounded at that point. 
and decided we were gonna go back the way we came and then take a northern approach and then go right back down into the city. It's what time yeah. we did. It took us eight hours to recover those folks. We lost eight soldiers killed, 58 wounded. And then uh, the funny part was at the end of the Long Road Home, the, the documentary you mentioned, that's where, that's where everyone thinks the story ends. Well, that, that fight really ended about 82 days later. We fought every single day for 82 days against an enemy that wanted to throw us out of the city. Through those 82 days, no one ever refused to go in. The soldiers that have been evacuated to the United States fought to come back to get with their units. And you just ask yourself, you know, why would those soldiers want to come back to the really the hell that they had experienced just you know on April 4th? And I, I tell you it's because of the bond that they had built and the train up in them that was crystallized in that combat. But they knew that they had a brotherhood, that that was their family, and they were not gonna gonna let that go. And that's why they fought for 82 straight days. And then we had about 35 days of no contact and fought for about 60 more, and then it was done. We broke in that fight and we got to do nothing but what we really thought we were going to do there originally, which was help the people of Sutter City get back on their feet. I can't imagine um, going into a situation where it's presented to you that it's going to be peaceful, and not only are you under attack and immediately have to deal with extraction, um, but you don't have all of the combat support services. You didn't bring those with you. So how do you how do you navigate that with limited yeah, well, resources? Well, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing was is the way my battalion was organized. You know, we did a task force. And that's when you bring units from outside yours to augment you. So I had a, I, I'm sure you've heard of Casey Sheehan. You know, he was in 182 artillery that was attached to me. I had a forward support company that had some sustainment, like they knew our ammo, but we relied on getting sustainment from the units that were there and moved that into the point of need, if you will. The other thing that, that challenged us is I, we had a soldier that was killed on the movement up from Kuwait who had gotten they had a traffic accident and killed him. It's the first kid I ever lost in, in an operation. I mean, I've been in the Army 18 years, never had a soldier killed. And, I'm getting called in the middle of the night saying we just lost a soldier who had died in a, in a traffic accident. So now we're trying to figure out how to deal with that while they're there the first day, having already lost a soldier. And then the next day you lose eight more and have 58 wounded, you're evacuating. I mean, it's just amazing to me that the resilience that these soldiers had to be able to focus on the task at hand with all these other things that were impacting on them at, at different levels. What a testament to uh, dedication, not only uh, to the mission, but also to uh, each other. Well, you know, that's, that's, we always used to say mission first, people always. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because at the end of the day, you've got to get the mission accomplished. And there are a lot of people saying, well, holy cow, look at all the people you lost. I mean, th these 58 soldiers that were wounded weren't all privates and specialists. There were leaders that were wounded. So I've got, Soldiers that are, you know, specialists that are doing staff sergeant jobs two levels up. I've got lieutenants that are doing things that are in positions that acquire a lot more experience because they're the only ones that were there, right? We had to yeah. you know, move them up, and they did phenomenally well in, in jobs that they weren't ready for. I mean, holy cow, what pride or specialist thinks he's going to be running? Yeah, he's just trying to figure out his own job, and now he's responsible for it at nine other people. Yeah. Uh, so that, and you know, the training and the bond that you built in that train up was absolutely essential. I mean, thankfully, 
for the train if we didn't take it as if we trained our wartime combat tasks all the way up until we got there. So it wasn't like we were training wise at a deficiency because we had only focused on peacekeeping. We focused on combat ops. So it was yeah. for the soldiers, they were ready for, to go combat operations, even though we didn't expect we'd have. Let's talk about the local community and uh, their reaction and the and any role that they played uh, in your time when you were in Sauter City. Well, I mean, what you want to do, obviously, is build that grassroots support. And the challenge in Sauter City was, and I'll never forget it, you know, we were doing all of these things. This is probably four months into my rotation there. And, you know, we had done some some pretty good work in the northern part of the city that was the worst. And I'll never forget, I walked up in this, there were these Muktada solder signs everywhere, photos of them. And I'm like, this is the guy that's leading the insurgency. And of course, you know, the name Sadr City came from, you know, his uh, Muhammad Sadiq Sadr that was killed by Saddam Hussein. And so it used to be that Al Thawra was a revolution now at Sadr City. So he has got the bona fides. That's his family member that's up there. And I walked up and I said, look, look what, what's going on. You've got, we're trying to help. Look what we've done, cleaning up sewage, getting trash collected. And yet you still are or following this guy, he goes, you could pay my, pave my street in gold and I'm still gonna follow Muqtada Sadr. That's who we are. So when wow. you look and say, how do you, how do you sway that? You're never gonna sway that. And so yeah. the, the piece is, how do you get to a position where people don't immediately demonize what you're trying to do? Because as I told them, we, we never did one offensive operation. We were defensive. We, the people that we fought with were attacking us first, frankly, or we got indications they were gonna. This wasn't going in and trying to overthrow anything. We were trying to help the people. So we really focused on the next generation. You're not gonna convince the people like that. He was dedicated to that for whatever, right, right or wrong, in his opinion, that was where he was going. So how do you affect the people below him? And so, you know, we started putting in women's schools and. You know, schools, building schools for girls. And I'll remember, remember one time I was with the same company commanders a few months later that I had gone into the operation inside the city. A kid named Troy Denemy was commanding of the company of the platoon that got ambushed. He and I were going to do a patrol together. And we were just one of those days where you were just not happy to be in Iraq. It was the, yeah. You know, the grind was there. It's the same stuff. And you could just see that the attitude on the boys was just not good. We were just in that in that funk and we were going into this one neighborhood and we were all walking in front of our vehicles because we were going down alleyways because any you had to guide them around the obstacles and the wires and this little girl's school had just um uh, adjourned and all these girls there must have been 30 or 40 of them came out going good good mister running around the humvees going good good mister and you could see the 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 attitude of the entire organization, the entire unit just started to get better and better. And so yeah. once they left, I walked up to Troy and said, how do you feel now? He goes, man, I feel great. Yeah. And it's that idea of just being people thanking you for what you were doing because they didn't want to be there away from their families. I mean, this is a year long deployment, right? So yeah. we wanted, we, we knew that we were never going to win, if you call winning, convincing the people that were the leadership there. We just had to, had to have them accept what we wanted to do and let them know it's getting better and better. And I'll share one more with you. 
people always ask me, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And I think that's the wrong question to ask. Because was it worth it makes you think, okay, the entire Iraq thing. We still got 2,500 soldiers in Iraq today. Yeah. I think it's better. And I, I could not influence, or nor my soldiers could influence anything when we weren't there, right? So did we make a difference is something I think is a better question. I can say categorically, undeniably, yes. And I can tell you without a doubt. And why is that? Two years later, I've, I've, left, I've left Battalion Command in Sauter City, went to War College, came back to Fort Cavazos, now Fort Cavazos, now Fort, then Fort Hood, and deployed back to Iraq as Deputy Chief of Staff of the Three Corps. And I was getting ready to take Brigade Command and go back to Iraq nine months later. Well, the commanding general at the time asked me if I wanted to go back to Sauter City, this is two years now, to talk to the unit that was currently in the city conducting operations. I was like, sure, I'd, I'd love to, you know, go back there and see what it looks like two years later. So yeah. we fly with him, we land in a helicopter, we land at a place called Jamila Police Station, which is just in the southern part of Sauter City. And, you know, he's a three-star general, so he gets out one side of the aircraft and everybody runs and talks to him, and I'm just a lowly colonel. I get on the other side, and I was saw this kid that I had served with before, a few years before, and he was on the security detached and securing the winding zone. So I was talking to him, and he goes, we've been talking for two minutes, three minutes, and he goes, hey, sir, look over your shoulder. I looked over my shoulder, and there were these Iraqi policemen pointing at me. He goes, they remember you. I'm like, what do you mean they remember me? He goes, sir, they remember you. So I walked up to the steps with the commanding general, and the chief of police looked and goes, Colonel Valeski, are you bringing your unit back? We really need you back here in Sauter City. That's two years later. Now, I'm not sure wow. the current commander enjoyed that, hearing that this guy that had been gone two years, you got the chief of police say, come back, bring your unit back. Yeah. But I tell my soldiers, that's the right question. Did you make a difference? Well, to those guys, we clearly did, because two years later, they remembered us, and they wanted us to come back and help them. Yeah. So that's, that's the when you talk about the impact that you leave. The impact that you left uh, was not limited to Sauter City over your 36-year career. I mean, you led the Department of Defense's military effort to contain the Ebola virus outbreak in Liberia. Uh, you were the commanding general for all of the ground operations in Iraq, leading multinational coalition of 10,000 military professionals from 10 different countries. And uh, you were the public affairs uh, chief for the Army, advising the Secretary and the Chief of Staff of the Army for all strategic communications and public affairs messaging. Um, so you have had this very, very extensive career. Um, you and I have talked about um, community mission and purpose with the Military Reunion Network, we often talk about uh, when you leave the military and you're leaving a uh, community mission and purpose, the, the transition and the, and the challenges of, of shift to civilian life. So let's visit about that um, a little bit and and uh, talk about your, your shift to civilian life. Well, it was, I will tell you, I remember the first day I woke up having been fully retired out of the Army and looking at my email and not seeing a hundred emails that needed an answer or getting woken up in the middle of the night going, Hey boss, we had something bad happen last night. That was really exciting not to have to worry about, you know, but after yeah. about, after a few months, you start missing that, that military community and the, the, the bonds that, with the soldiers that I'd spent 36 years building. 
And, you know, I really struggled for a long time about what is the purpose, what's my new purpose in life? And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you appreciate the military community when you're in it, the higher you go. I mean, when I was a lieutenant and captain, I didn't really participate with the community. I mean, you get invited to things, but you didn't really have a great relationship with the community because you were out training or out in the field or out deploy. But the, when I became a battalion commander, a brigade, or a commanding general, that's where the, you really, really get to see up close to firsthand how important a community is. Um, because I got to a point where I could call people in the community and say, look, here's some challenges, and they would run to fix them. They, they just looked to help. And so that loss of that community really impacted not only me, but Leanne, my wife. I mean, she'd grown up, she was in the Army for eight years and then got out during, after Desert Storm, but you know, I tell people I had the easy job in Sutter City because I just was focused on the fight. She had to talk to all those families that lost those soldiers, had soldiers horribly wounded. I mean, she had to be at Fort Hood then, now Fort Cavazos, and deal with all those family issues. But I think it's much harder than just focusing on the fight. And so, you know, yeah. we came to Alabama. We'd never lived here before. We moved in a community that is pro-military, but no one had ever served in the military of my neighbor. So I speak a language that they don't necessarily understand. Yeah. So as I sat back and thought, man, what am I going to do? And, and I, I had the wrong questions. Not what can do I do for me? It's what can I do for others? And once I started thinking about that, what can I do for others and in the community? That's where my purpose started to get better, more and more fully yeah. defined. And that's where we are today. I mean, that's speaking on behalf of veterans, you know, participating in, I'm a member of the BFW, really focusing on helping veterans so that, you know, the challenges veterans have today are not, not easy. You know, we talked about veteran suicide. We talked about PTS. Um, we talked about the trust and confidence, attrition of the public trust and confidence in the military. I mean, these are things that are impacting veterans every day that I think veterans have a great opportunity to go and, and really go all in and help with the great supporting cast of the members of the community. And that's really what I'm focusing on today. Yeah, um, I, let's let's talk about, because that was really the, the core of your theme when you spoke uh, at, at church at the, at the Veterans Appreciation Dinner. Um, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about that messaging to the veteran community and um, kind of your, your, your thoughts just in general about veterans helping veterans. Yeah, well, you know, I believe that you know, veterans play a critical role in taking care and building resilience with other veterans, as well as being really key uh, influencers within local communities to make sure we encourage support for vets and, and the military as well. So, you know, as you heard me talk about before, <coughs> veterans, when I see veterans portrayed in, in commercials or whatever, it's normally a wounded warrior or a guy that's suffering from PTS. And those are absolutely as critical uh, challenges that we need to make sure never for, are never forgotten and we always take care of them. But veterans, they, they do so much more. I mean, they're small business yeah. leaders in communities. They're civil servants. I mean, they're, they get things done. And and they're role models, and they represent the less than 1% of people that have raised their right hand and volunteered to defend the freedom of this country. And so as I, as I look at these things and say, 
you know, I look at the recruiting challenges the military's got. You know, every service has failed to meet their recruiting goals. And so you look at the Army missing it two years. What can we do? And, and I just look and say, you know, the veterans, we can start to change those narratives. We can start to tell people why we volunteer to serve our nation, what the importance are, because they understand, veterans understand what loyalty, duty, and selfless service really mean, because they've had to do that. Regardless if you served one enlistment of four years or you're crazy like me and you served 36. Yeah. But we have a responsibility to give back to the community, even though we're not in the Army wearing a uniform anymore. We still have a responsibility because we do represent the less than 1%. And we... You know, we, we need to tell those young men and women out there that, that may not understand why service to their country is so important, why we did it, and, and convince them that it is a noble profession. Yeah. Yeah. I could not, could not agree more. Um, you and I also talked in a couple of previous conversations, and I always have to get this in there, um, talking about... Um, the role uh, military reunions play in uh, kind of rebuilding that mission purpose and community. And from your perspective, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's a great topic to talk about now. I mean, we're getting ready for our 20th anniversary of the fight in Sauter City in April. So I'm right now planning it, with, and we technically have almost 200 vets coming to that right now, and it, we just put it out on the street. You know, military reunions are absolutely essential to reconnect friendships that enable resilience to be built. I mean, I look at, at the 10-year the reunion we did 10 years ago and, and seeing soldiers that had struggled, vets that had struggled with the memories of that and watching them reconnect with their units and their, their, their fellow soldiers and just seeing the, the significant impact it had on them. And then after that reunion's done, those connections last, they're enduring. I mean, I'll give you an example. A year ago, I had a soldier from 2004 call me and tell me he just wanted to thank me for all I'd done, but he's going to kill himself because he couldn't deal with the pain that he had suffered from these deployments. And I was like, holy cow, wait a minute. So we talked. I linked him back in with those veterans that he'd seen at the 10-year reunion, and, and they all got him the help that he needed to get him over that hump. And they continue to engage with them every day. And, you know, his his whole issue was he didn't have anybody he thought he could talk to that would understand it. And that's what veterans in these military unions are so yeah. essential in, because yeah. they bring you together in a venue that you never have the opportunity at that level or that number of people to talk to to really relive both good times and bad and get you yeah. that, that immediate assistance and, and courage to talk about those things. And in those venues, people will talk like, they're old friends because they are family. They, they yeah, reach, yeah. And that's what they are. They're a brotherhood and sisterhood of a family. And that family is the thing that takes care of it. I mean, I was thinking this morning when I was out on my walk, you know, when I, when I heard myself, I talked to my wife because she understands what my problem is. And I go to a doctor for the medicine, but my wife understands what I'm talking about. Exactly. Similarly, the, these veterans, they understand what you're talking about. And they can give, say things that matter, that mean, that resonate with those other veterans that no one else can. That's why military unions are so... There's a, there's a hell of a lot of healing that happens in the buffet line, you know, <laughs> as, you're, as, you're, as you're walking through. And it's not, only, it's not only for the veterans themselves, but their families. So well, and any it's not, as you say, it's not just your unit. I mean, I've got friends, you know, you mentioned the time I was in Iraq with a multinational force where... I had Marines, I had Australians, New Zealanders. 
we still stay in touch to this day. Uh, and so how do you continue to make those connections strong or make them that connected tissue, tissue enduring? Um, yeah. Not only with the unit that you serve with, but all the veterans out there, because, you know, none of my former soldiers live in uh, Huntsville, but there's a lot of veterans that need some assistance here. And so getting in these venues of you know, supporting VFW or other VSO type organizations is absolutely critical to make sure that we're speaking on behalf of veterans and helping veterans everywhere we go. The Veterans Appreciation Dinner, uh, I posed a question to you because you were talking about standing up and speaking out for the veteran community. And uh, I, I referenced that as a civilian, I don't feel qualified to stand up and, and speak out on veterans' behalf because I haven't served, and nor would I want anyone to um, think that I completely understand what service is like. Uh, and so it was very uh, empowering to hear your response to that question of, of how a civilian can stand up and uh, support our veteran community. Well, it's, you know, it's like when somebody wants to do an assessment of their, of their business, they go and get an outsider that doesn't know anything about the business, come in and take a fresh look. So right. what, what people that are supporting veterans that never serve, they're given fresh looks. And they, because you get exposed to so many things outside of what I see as a veteran, you can say, well, you know, I saw this over here work real well. You bring new ideas to help take care of veterans. And frankly, even in the military communities I was in, a lot of the community leaders had never served, and but they just wanted to help. And yeah. so understanding what the veteran require, needs are and filling that, that gap is absolutely essential to taking care of veterans. And so we could not do, it's like, you know, people say, what, what do people tell you when you talk to them? Well, normally I hear, thanks for your service. That used to really irritate me because I'm thinking, okay, that's an easy buzz phrase. But then I started thinking, well, you know, we could not do what we do without the support of the American people, which is why this trust and confidence number that we're at 60% is so disturbing to me because if yeah. that starts to flip like it was in Vietnam, we're going to be having a lot of problems. We absolutely rely on the support of our communities. And so it, I, I just think that it's great that we've got people that are that have never served that come in and want to help because we need their support to help veterans to continue to, to meet the care requirements and, and be all they can be as veterans in the community, bring them back into communities at times when isolation and, and transition are so difficult for a number. Reflecting on your transition uh, to civilian life, I was really excited to hear um, your passion and enthusiasm uh, for the veteran community and supporting veterans, uh, but taking that a step further and uh, stepping up to uh, commit to speaking at different events just on that very subject, uh, among others, but really focusing on um, how we can support our veteran community. So we should talk about uh, how you ended up uh, deciding to uh, getting into to the speaker gig. Well, like we were talking about earlier, you know, I really had no under, no real idea what I was going to do. You know, I'd done some consulting, and and what I what I said when I came out of the army is, you know, I, a good friend of mine told me, "Hey, Gary, when you get out of the army, you need to take four months off, just because you don't know how tired you are, and you need to give your family back some of that time you took from them the last thirty six years of serving your nation." And so. After about three and a half months, I told Leanne, you know, I'm not sure I'm ever going to go back to work full time because I, I just didn't want to, 
I didn't want to work the same 17 hour a day to chase a paycheck. And so yeah. that was part of the problem. I told folks, you know, I got approached, do you want to do this? And I said, if I wasn't passionate about it, I wasn't going to do it because I, I want to be passionate because then, then I don't mind getting up and going to work every morning when I'm passionate about it. And so I got a call for the venue you're talking about and who asked me to come speak. And he was a soldier of mine that we served in combat together. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. And, and just over that, that period of preparation, you know, Liam was like, what are you doing in the office already? It's like, I'm fired up on making sure this goes right now. You know, I, I am a product of the public school system, so I do speak in some language that people may not understand. So I'm hopeful my passion makes up for some of my limitations in the English vocabulary. But when I was when I was speaking at that venue, it was just I saw the community that I've been looking for. I saw opportunity to help, you know, get a, a need that we need to continue to reinforce, not just for veterans, but to inspire people to join the army or join the military to make a contribution. Yeah. 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 So it, well, I'm. Go ahead. It gets me. I'm. I'm pretty excited to get up and do this every morning. Well, I we're excited that you're excited. Um, and it's just going to be. It, it's it's awesome. So I'm I'm looking forward to introducing you to our community and and you know there's a lot of army reunions out there that are would be chomping at the bit to have you as a as a keynote. So it's it's. Uh, it's well, going to be pretty cool. I, I look forward to any opportunity I have to speak on behalf of veterans and, and convince people outside the uh, our community that military reunions aren't like your high school reunion where it's a party. There is stuff that goes on in these military reunions that are absolutely essential to helping so veterans get the help they need to building that resiliency and keeping that enduring family together. And that's what's special about military reunions and what your work. Got to thank you for the work you're doing, Sharon. As I told you before, I may, I'd never even heard of this, this organization that you're leading, and I'm fired up to be a part of it. So thank well, you. Well, we're, we're fired up right back, Gary, for sure, for sure. I, I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope this is the first of many conversations we will have over the years about a wide variety of subjects, and um, I'm just really appreciative of your, of your time and, and your passion, not only for uh, serving our country for as long as you have, but also continuing that service uh, with our veteran community. So I just really appreciate it and thank you so much for that. Yeah, I want to thank you again for what you do, Sharon. Uh, you you are meeting a need that is absolutely critical for our veterans. And I want to thank all the veterans out there that are listening. Thanks for your service and what you've done for your nation. Don't forget you're less than 1% of the population that raised their right hand to serve. And I'm proud to say I'm got to serve with some of you and wish I could serve with all of you. Thank you for joining us on the Military Reunion Network Radio. I appreciate you taking the time and to our veteran community, thank you so much for your service and uh, for those of you that are involved with planning your reunions, thank you so much for your continued volunteerism and enthusiasm and keeping them going. Thank you so much and we will see you next time.